For December 3rd, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 544. Russia is like downtown Abbey. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. Every week we step into the ring of pop culture discourse and debate, and we try to score as many body blows as we can uh, on the culture that we talk about. This week, (laughs) it is uh, Creed Two, which is a film about municipalities and the difficulties that they have providing reliable services to their constituents. <laughs> I'm Matt Rather. I am here with uh, my fellow, with my training and sparring partners, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. Hello, Matthew. All right. We are getting into uh, Creed 2 in just a second. We are going to have spoilers for Creed 2, but it doesn't matter. Uh, Listen to the podcast anyway. And then, you know, decide from what we say whether you want to go and experience the full grandeur of uh, of Creed 2. To. Uh, but first, it is, uh, it is that time. It's that time of year, that time when uh, commercialism is in the air and we have been uh, partaking of the publisher Christmas gift recommendation affiliate marketing scam since before it was cool, before it was uncool the first time, before it became cool again, and before it became uncool the second time. I hope that that this is is the third wave. That's right. We have the Overthinking It gift guide uh, up now where you can shop for gifts for your smart, funny friends recommended by the overthinkers. And in doing so, we get a little kickback uh, from the retailer when when you buy those things through our links. Uh, every year, we make a whole bunch of recommendations. We enjoy picking out things that we think you'll like. We enjoy writing little blurbs about them. And this year, Mark Lee has quite an unusual recommendation of, of a piece of technology that is so space so futuristic. It's almost, it's as though Elon Musk and Tim Cook and, uh, uh, you know, Larry Page and, and, um, all the, all the, the great tech luminaries of got together and worked. Jeff Bezos worked on this one product altogether. Mark, can you tell us a little something about what you are recommending on the gift guide this year? Sure. Well, first of all, let's be clear that I use the word, we are using the word recommend here quite loosely because this is frankly a ridiculous product. But imagine all those tech geniuses and tech luminaries all went onto a fish boat and they caught a beautiful big mouth bass and his name is billy <laughs> and then they installed alexa technology into it <laughs> that's what i'm talking about this is an alexa powered big mouth billy bass you know that like ridiculous amounts of fish that in the past would just merely sing songs for you well now with the power of artificial intelligence it will tell you what the weather is order you an uber and it will also sing songs for you <laughs> the other amazing thing that the other amazing thing that it will do is that it, it makes this like terrifying technology really approachable because like you know the regular alexa is what this uh metal plastic and sometimes cloth uh sci-fi can uh and it's got this like isr on light 
on the top of it. I find it frankly terrifying. And uh, looking at it and interacting, it reminds me of like the horrible tech dystopia that is to come, where everything is going to be like Blade Runner, but worse. Um, but when all of that is in the package of a ridiculous fish that's mounted on your wall, it's not so bad, right? You know, like the fish is uh, siphoning up all of your personal data, and yeah, it's not so bad. And the fish is telling you to go, uh, go meet your Uber, or it's time to order more Tide Pods, and uh, and you don't think about the fact that all your personal data is being used to make you buy more stuff. It's it's just delightful. Check it out. Yeah, if uh, it would, it, you know, if if the fish spoke to you, Dayenu. If the fish sung, you know, uh, if the fish sung uh, various fish pun related songs to you, Dianu, but the fact that the, the fish can call you an Uber, that the fish can invade your privacy, that the, the fish can, um, you know, siphon your personal data off into a nefarious corporation. This really is a holiday miracle. We hope you'll pick one up from the overthinking at Christmas list. That is an unequivocal recommendation from Mark Lee, a highest, highest recommendation uh, from Mark. Thanks very much. One other thing that's on the Overthinking It holiday gift guide is a, a membership to Overthinking It. So you you might be familiar. We've talked about the Overthinking It memberships over the last couple of years while the program has been active. You know, when we started it, hey, surprise, surprise, we overthought it a little bit. And there were options and different tiers and uh, different, you know, d- different levels and lengths and things like this. And, and, um, it, it ended up being a little hard to navigate and, and for us a little unsustainable to service, which was ironic given that the whole, the whole point of it was to, uh, nudge the site into sustainable, financially sustainable <laughs> territory. Now we've accepted that that's never going to happen. <laughs> so the, uh, the, uh, the purpose of the, the membership program has, has changed and the terms of the membership program has changed. If you would like to support Overthink, it uh, and especially you know if you you think back around the holidays, a time of giving. Uh, if we have brought good fun into your life, interesting conversations, smart insights, a, a, a good hearty laugh or two, well then. Uh, Throw a couple shekels our way, you know. Throw throw a couple bucks at at uh, overthinking it um, to support this thing this thing that you like. We're uh, offering now the the one tier of membership for five bucks a month, and you get some extra podcasts. Not only the question of the week, which we record separately from the show. Uh, not only the Pete Cast, which is the solo effort of Pete Fenzel, but also some uh, uh, TV recaps that we did, members only, the Overthinking a Book Club on 1984, a book relevant to our times, some would argue, that we did uh, for members only. All the overviews downloadable in the Overthinking It store for free for members. Uh, we, we give you all of this uh, downloadable audio. You, I know you like audio. You're listening to it right now. Uh, and there's more to say thank you if you support us uh, as a member of Overthinking It. So thanks very much for doing that. There are links to both of those things, the gift guide and uh, the page to join as an Overthinking It member in the show notes. Uh, all right. We'll, we'll uh, say more about it as we go on through the, uh, through the Christmas season. I shouldn't say the Christmas season. The, the winter holiday uh, season just to be non, uh, non-hegemonic about it. All right, uh, let's talk about Creed. I want to start with a question, Creed 2. Um, 
and and I want to uh, open it up uh, to the floor, but maybe I can start with uh, with Pete. I'll bet you have a, a, a perspective on this, Pete. What good is a light that don't light? <laughs> <laughs> now that is an interesting question. And this is, of course, is the question that Rocky poses about the street lamp outside of his house that doesn't work when he's talking with the municipal authorities. So the- much screen time <laughs> is spent on this street light, and it's not even wrapped up at the end. <laughs> like, he, like sees it, he sees it with Adonis, right? Like, uh, this light doesn't work on my street. And then later, there's like a two-minute sequence where he's on the phone one-sided conversation talking with city services and then because the rule of three there's a scene at the end where he comes home and the street light is shining no there isn't it's it's just dropped there is no third instance of it showing up what the heck is this street light doing in this movie <laughs> uh you know i <laughs> I, I want to start going into a rousing rendition of this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine because that might actually uh, elucidate, shed some light on what this metaphor, this rather heavy. It's a symbol more than a metaphor. This rather in your face uh, symbol is uh, doing for the movie. So Creed 2, right? It involves these characters who are trying to do things for reasons that are not the reasons that feel authentic to them. And this is a sort of dicey. I'm, I'm, I'm offering that up to everybody to reformulate over the course of our podcast, but there is a gap in the characters in Creed two between, and they, they frame it as, you know, what are you fighting for? Which is a bit, it oversimplifies it a little bit, I think, but there's this sense of whether it's like teleological or, Uh, It's about maybe it's about kind of psychological honesty or authenticity, but this idea that the different fighters and whether they are currently fighters or past fighters or metaphorical fighters have something that they believe that they are fighting for and that if it is the wrong thing, then they will not be successful. But if it is the right thing, then they will be successful. And I feel like that's what to me the light is about, which is the light is the thing the light lights when it's serving its appropriate purpose. And if you are, if your relationship with the municipal authority who is responsible for lighting the light does not result in the light outside of your house lighting, then there is something wrong with that relationship and is it being endeavored upon by at least one party, not in good faith or at least in some sort of state of self-denial or self-misleading, right? It's like uh, Adonis needs to learn to let his light shine because even though he is following in the footsteps of his illustrious father, it is his father's light, not his light, that is shining when he walks into the ring with that legacy on his back. And as such, he needs to turn his light on. So the answer is, what good is a light that don't light? Well, it's good enough to make you think you can drive safely down the street before you crash into the cars on the side of the road, <laughs> I guess is how I would break that out. Uh, is, this, is this a question we should toss around the room to other people, what they think about what good is a light that don't like? Should I pass this along to Mark now? I mean, since I work in municipal government, I could go in a whole spiel about when you have a repair backlog and you don't address it in the right way, then you resort to other triage methods. And that could result in a two year wait, uh, could conceivably <laughs> result in a two year wait. So you're but saying Creed we, we 2 is a realistic movie <laughs> about municipal light repair maintenance. Yeah, well, let's but, put it uh, this way, right? There's no unlike in Rocky Four, its obvious pre- predecessor. Uh, there's no robot 
in this. So they really made this movie a lot more grounded. That's yeah, yeah. part of it, right? <laughs> Did is Polly supposed? Is it supposed to be understood that Polly is having sex with a robot in Rocky Four? I think Unfor- it's, unfortunately, yes. Yes, um, <laughs> Polly may 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 he rest uh, yeah. in peace. Who whose references died in, in the last Creed movie? <laughs> I mean, uh, Polly may he rest. May he rest after having sex with the robot for so long. <laughs> I mean, okay, we're already tiring. off the rails. <laughs> we, got, we, we got through half or a third of one question before we went to the sex robot. Well, I, I, the just, movie. I guess I'll just I'll just say that like um, yeah I'll, uh, I'll just say that I thought the the song joke that I was going to make was uh, Chumbawamba's tub thumping. Uh, on this movie, I thought it, and it was going to be a, bu- a bunch of jokes about getting knocked down and getting back up again. But uh, I guess the song, the uh, you know musical joke that that we're going to return to is this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, <laughs> let it shine, let it shine. Yeah, it's uh, it's very. Um, I, yeah, it's it's I don't know. It feels like it feels like there's one more. And this this, by the way, is not directed by Ryan Coogler. And, and you can kind of see I feel like there there are a couple of moments in the, the way the film is put together and in the, the visual storytelling that don't necessarily live up to Creed one, which which or it wasn't even called Creed one to Creed the a better a better movie um all told but but pete do you i mean is that really how you feel about the the plot of this film it's about kind of aligning um it's a sort of uh, you know modeled on on rocky four the the it uh does a kind of a wrong version and then a right version of aligning your goal and your motivation uh, and that that's like that's the important thing. I think so. Although the conclusions it arrives at are tricky. I feel like the trickiest scene in this movie for me and maybe for other people, it felt very straightforward. I just wasn't able to feel straightforward about it was the scene in the gym where Adonis has brought amara to the gym because he can't get her to stop crying and he he sees he's trying other things that are not working right so here we go right he's trying all sorts of things to take care of his daughter they're not working and so he gravitates back to his power space and brings her to the gym where it seems she's relatively happy and uh i get and and the question then is okay is the gym making her happy or is the fact that he is less stressed making her happy because he is not he's in his comfort space or then there's just that moment that kind of hijacks the whole parent-child dynamic where adonis has this cathartic primal scream fest where he's hitting the heavy bag and you get the sense that in this moment he is achieved the transformation on, on a sort of basic level he hasn't completed it yet but he's gone over the tipping point he's figured out the path right he's he's changed the trajectory of his life in such a way that it is going to lead through the other scenes in the movie towards him winning the fight at the end of the movie and it's tr- it's just it's so tricky because the question what are you fighting for the obvious answer is well I'm fighting for my daughter but I don't read that scene that way that Adonis decides to punch the heavy bag because he realizes that it's worth it because of his daughter. That just, that, that that doesn't seem, what seemed to me more was that that was about him, 
that was about him as a man and as an individual. Maybe the fact that he became a father allows him to put aside the idea of himself as a son, which he can't get away from. So, so he needs to become an adult and, and having a child is part of his recognition of the responsibilities and identity of being an adult. And it's not that that having the child allows him to put the responsibility of his life onto somebody else, like as in his responsibility serves the interest of somebody else now. Not he is not doing this for himself anymore. He's doing it for this kid. That's not how I read it. It seemed more like the existence of the kid freed him up to do things for himself. But that by doing things for himself, he also was more available as a father, as a husband. Uh, but I'm also kind of wrestling with this whole dynamic in this movie because, because as you said, just with the light scene, they don't come back at the end and explain it. They just don't. In fact, I think all of the biggest character moments in this movie happen without dialogue, which is really interesting. I mean, it's not necessarily rare that Rocky movies have scenes where people don't talk about what's happening and instead just punch, right? Like, also, that's kind of normal. It also plays to, to Michael B. Jordan's strengths, right? I think like I think it's become cool to hate on Michael B. Jordan a little bit. Like he's really? not, that's unfortunate. Yeah, because yeah. like he's not a good actor because it's true that sometimes dialogue sounds a little. There are a couple of lines in Black Panther that are usually kind of marshaled in this. Uh, you know, uh, in this, it's I th- he says something in in um, Black Panther about uh, slaves jumping off the slave ships because they knew what they were going to was was a fate worse than death. Yeah. He says, yeah. you know, bury me in the ground with my ancestors or some some stuff like this. And it, I guess, to some people's ears, it sounds a little stilted. I mean, it's, oh, it's come on, that line was awesome. That one liner was awesome. It's stilted, right? like, yeah. It's stilted dialogue, and and even if you grant that. Right. Like there's more to acting than than a kind of oral interpretation. Right. Being good with with dialogue. I suppose it's it. it, Of course, it's it's an important part of it. But like watch his face, you know, like through this through this whole thing. And and here there's just there's just a lot of close up on his face in in Creed, too. It was sort of well, I'll save it for later. I was wondering where the real hero shot of the the movie is. And there there are two candidates, one in the training montage in the desert and one at the end of the fight Uh, or uh, during the fight, I guess, when Gonna Fly Now comes on the soundtrack. But the but the the camera is a lot closer to his face for a lot of it, just sort of registering registering him registering thoughts you know and that's like that is every bit as important as a, you know as a, a kind of kind of acting than like being able to you know smoothly um smoothly deliver dialogue even it, it, it and this is supposing that you know that you're willing to grant that that he sometimes struggles with it which i i think is not necessarily something we should concede and anyway um yeah so let me get it. If we're talking about this movie not exactly connecting its dots, right, with the um, with the street lamp stuff, and then with this particular scene with the with the kid in the boxing, I, mean, I, I think I think we're right, right. I mean, what you just described there in terms of the strength of the acting and and um, Adonis's own sort of personal journey, sure, that's all there, right. And to be clear, right, the main purpose for him going back going back to the gym is because er, like just a few minutes earlier, we show him having gone drove to the gym and just sat in the car. And then couldn't bring himself to actually go into the gym, right? This is the first time he's able to actually kind of pull his stuff together to get there. Does it exactly connect to, like, the specific problem that he has on hand with, like, becoming a good father? 
No, the movie doesn't really stick its landing there. Um, but it's like it, all of the emotional stuff and the character stuff is like all good enough, I think, in this. Um, maybe another good example of this also is on the Russian side of the coin where um, Victor Drago, uh, you know, like with all the mom stuff. Right. I guess, uh, you know, everyone's got everybody. Uh, has got his daddy issues. Uh, Victor's got his. Well, he's got daddy issues, too, but he's got mommy issues as well. Where mommy shows up at the at the awkward state dinner and he's not happy about that. And mommy shows up at the fight and ostensibly that gives him some motivation and then decides to get up and leave when the fight turns against Victor. And then he looks up and the camera lingers on the empty chair, empty chair, empty chair, not there. And he just kind of like loses the will to fight there. Right. Um, I think that's an incomplete idea there. Um, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. I read that scene totally differently. Uh, I read it totally differently. Okay. Uh, although, although I also, although what I will say is that, well, I guess the first thing I'll say is that I see this sort of disjointedness as more of a feature than a bug. And part of what makes the movie not as good as Creed one, but also kind of its own thing. Uh, but, but at any rate, here's how I read the whole Drago thing. And I think one of the other things that's, that I think is true about this movie is this movie has a little bit of a Terminator salvation problem in, in that it was <laughs> You're like, triggering me, Pete. You're triggering yeah, me. Well, not, Here's the thing. This is a movie that was started out with one plan, which was for Ryan Coogler to do it. And then Ryan Coogler left to do Black Panther. And then Sylvester Stallone like sat down and wrote it. And then they handed it off to a different director. And so it's a movie that has gone through a couple of changes. And I think it's pretty obvious sometimes when a movie turns out very differently from how it was originally planned, like Terminator Salvation, which, you know, Christian Bale playing John Connor was not supposed John Connor was not supposed to be a major character in that movie. But because Christian Bale agreed to take the part, they made the part much bigger, which threw off the narrative flow of the movie and makes the overall arcs and plots of the movie not hang together and makes the movie by and large not make any sense. And so you see that sometimes where the seams are showing and it's a really big problem. I feel like Creed 2 has some seams that are showing, but it's not really a problem because the movie's still good. It's a good example of how they managed to salvage a project that could have gone really south and turn it into a movie that I thought was good. And at the very least, I think people would submit as enjoyable. But I would even venture as far as to say this is a good movie. But okay, so here's the thing. Here's the trick with the Drago plot the way I see it. Uh, and you, you're free to, you know, agree or disagree, you know, whatever. Uh, no authority on Ivan Drago. Uh, but note I say Ivan Drago. I think that because Sylvester Stallone took over the writing of this movie, he made the movie in parts of it much more about Rocky Four and about Rocky and Ivan Drago than it otherwise would have been if it had really been about Adonis and Victor Drago. So there's like there's an unbalance here where a great deal of the movie is about Adonis Creed's personal journey and transformation to becoming this heavyweight champion, which, of course, in the previous movie, he was a light heavyweight champion. So it's quite a, quite a distance he has to travel uh, becoming a heavyweight champion and then kind of solidifying his legacy. Uh, and then the, there's this other plot that's sort of related, which is about Rocky and even Drago meeting again after all these years after Rocky four. And uh, Rocky kind of kind of putting ghosts to rest and and also even Drago putting ghosts to rest. So so here's the even Drago plot. And, and by the way, if you haven't seen Rocky four, we should probably just sort of put this out there because they talk about it a lot in Creed two. Might as well acknowledge it. Rocky four is a late Cold War movie about Rocky wrapped in the American flag fighting a, a Soviet boxer wrapped in the Soviet flag. Uh, and it is a movie about 
how the American needs to abandon being decadent and and focused on wealth and flash and get back to his sort of individualistic tough roots by like running up mountains and lifting carts full of rocks. And that's how he can beat the Russian. And the Russian uh, has to realize that the Soviet Union is not in his best interest and that being sort of part of a collectivized state inhibits his ability to actualize his own talent in, in a way that fulfills him. And so the Russian becomes more individualistic. Rocky becomes more kind of uh, salt of the earth and they fight each other and Rocky wins and he gives this big, big speech and the Cold War is ended and everyone's happy. That's what happens in Rocky 4. This is after- <laughs> and, he, and he throws the nuclear weapons into the sun. <laughs> exactly. He throws the nuclear weapons <laughs> into the sun. Of course, at the beginning of Rocky 4, Apollo Creed is killed after a massively hubristic display of pompous American uh, pageantry to the tune of living in America. I think there's a guy on stilts. It's all sorts of craziness. And there is a sex robot. But that all notwithstanding, uh, you've got Ivan Drago, right? So in Rocky IV, <laughs> you've got Ivan Drago, who is this Soviet machine, right? He's he's being tested on all these machines. He's being pumped full of drugs. He's an, he's an arm of the Soviet state, and he is being put in here to beat and humiliate Rocky because the Soviet state, as a collective agency under the direction of the party totalitarians, is going to humiliate and defeat America and freedom in the world stage. That's kind of the this, what they're trying to do. And he's married to this woman who is a party official, it seems, and and very involved. She's in a military uniform for, I think, at least some of the movie. She's she's his spokesperson. She tells everybody what he thinks. And um, and in the middle of his boxing match with Rocky, he has this big realization where he's like, yo, and he's like, I fight for myself. I fight for myself. I'm not fighting for any of you. And and he has this catharsis in the ring. And um, OK, and so in Creed 2, we pick up with Ivan Drago after this has happened, where he's yelled at all of his trainers. He's declared that he's not doing this for the Soviet Union anymore, and he loses. And he has apparently been uh, effectively exiled from the country. Right? He's been sent to the Ukraine, which has a very proud boxing tradition uh, and one that is active right now in multiple weight classes in a big way. Uh, and also one that is very tied to the conflict between Russia and the Ukraine uh, and the world stage. The boxing scene in the Ukraine is very enmeshed in all this. So Ivan Drago is training Victor Drago in the Ukraine. Victor Drago has lived in the Ukraine for his entire life. He has never lived in Russia, uh, as far as we know, right, except maybe briefly as a child. And uh, and Ivan Drago, like, chases his son with a car and tries to run him over as a way to get him to run faster. But then we get to the big show, right? And it's like, okay, now that Victor Drago can humiliate the American again, now he's getting invited back to Russia. Ivan Drago is getting invited back to being among all the bigwigs in his old life in Russia. And Russia, Russia now represented not as a faceless Soviet bureaucracy with, you know, cinder block, a part of, you know, blocks of flats or things like this, but as a, you know, opulent, decadent uh, sports car extravaganza. Right, right. It's like it's like downtown Abbey. Right? It's, like, <laughs> it's what Russia's like now. Oh. And, and, and so Ivan, and Ivan Drago even sees the possibility of reuniting with his wife. And uh, and he's very excited about all this because he's been humiliated. But his son has barely been in Russia. There's that great shot where the son is walking into the Russian gym and there's a big Russian flag hanging on the wall. And the son kind of looks up at it and it's like, huh? I know maybe I'm reading into it. But that's how I read I that, that moment. That's an interesting detail. Yeah. I mean, it might be that I'm just really cognizant because of guys like the Klitschko brothers and Usyk, right, and Lomachenko and all of these. There's Ukrainian boxing. One of the big heavyweight champion 
of the last last big heavyweight champions of the last bunch of years have become politicians in the Ukraine and are very involved in the conflict in the Ukraine and Russia. The current light heavyweight champion who wants him up to heavyweight guy named Usyk is a pro-Russian Ukrainian. There's a, there's multiple Ukrainian Olympic medalists who are big boxers now. So my reading of it, being somebody who's somewhat somewhat you know, casually interested in boxing is that Victor Drago is at this point a Ukrainian boxer and not really a Russian boxer. And but Victor Drago, but Ivan Drago wants him to be a Russian boxer. And and with this whole question of, well, what are you fighting for? Right. What is it that you're doing all this for? And Victor is not really making any of these choices. He is just being pushed along. He has no opportunity to really offer his own agency. And so the the story is really about why Ivan Drago is doing it. And I love the moment where the mom gets up to leave, right? And this is this sort of Ivan Drago, what am I doing this for moment, when he sees that his wife is getting up to, his ex-wife is getting up to leave with the man that she came to the fight with, right? Not, not even alone. He thinks, oh my God. He looks at his son, who at this point is being beaten very badly and is not really effectively defending himself because the fight has just progressed because he's just losing. You know, it's it's a late in the fight loss, but it's a loss. And he realizes, oh, my God, the thing that I'm I'm giving up the thing that really matters to me, which is I am risking that my son is going to be taken away from me and killed in the same way that I killed Apollo Creed in the ring because I'm so focused on getting back this thing that really doesn't matter to me, which is this wife who's moved on and isn't part of my life anymore. This country that doesn't even really exist the way that I understood it before. And even when I when it did exist for me, I wasn't really welcome there. Like, like Ivan Drago, so much is going. You talk about, you know, good actors. You got Dolph Lundgren in this piece, all right? And you got Dolph, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren is going is, is really lends a ton of humanity to Ivan Drago uh, in this movie more than more than he deserves, right? Like uh, much much more than he deserves by this pathos and understanding of I need to concede this boxing match to save my son's life and brain because you know if you are allowed to sit in a boxing ring and just get punched in the face over and over again without defending yourself, you I mean there is a current. Uh, champion who was dethroned the night last night, uh, not in the big, big fight last night, but in another fight last night, who was in the hospital in critical condition right now. Like it is dangerous. You know, Joe Frazier was in the hospital for a long time after he fought Muhammad Ali. But the idea, like he doesn't want his son to be taken away from him. And that's why he concedes the boxing match. And that's why in the last shots, you see the, him running side by side with his son rather than chasing his son in the car because the arc isn't about Victor Drago. The arc, arc is about Ivan Drago, which is because yeah. this is a nostalgia piece, because the composition of it mm-hmm. was disjointed and separated and it's multiple projects in one. You would think that it really should be about Victor, but it's kind of not. I mean, it's about how I. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, what you're saying. Sorry. Finish your finish your thought. Peter. Oh, just that it's this is a, the, the long and the short of it is that the Ivan Drago arc in this movie is about Ivan Drago realizing that he needs to let go of who he was and be the person that he is and respond to the relationships in his life that actually matter to him because they are the ones that have existed for him even when his idea of himself and his legacy has not. And that's his son. Right. And uh, that's that's cashed yeah. out in a, in a shot very late in the movie where you see them jogging side by side to abreast. Right. 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 I, I, like... I got choked up. I wept when Ivan Drago threw in the towel. That was that was. A, uh, yeah. The, 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 the scene with them joining together was was very touching. And, and I, mean, well I weep at everything. Though. Um, I cried when I cried when uh, Gwyneth Paltrow saved Iron Man and Iron Man three. I say I cry all the time. 
time. So don't don't base anything off of when I cry in movies because it happens constantly. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, that was my reading of the Ivan Drago story. And I'm as big a fan of Ivan Drago as you're likely to find anywhere in the world. So uh, which is weird because he doesn't deserve it. But and, uh, and as as big a fan of of Swedish chemical engineer Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> yes. Swedish <laughs> <laughs> chemical engineer and former Boston nightclub bouncer Dolph Lundgren. Yes. <laughs> That's how I'll cite him in the, his bio on the site. As former featured player in Johnny Mnemonic, the ultimate hard drive, Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> Dolph yeah. Lundgren is Dolph Lundgren is like a Butch Tilda Swinton, right? Is that he's just he's he's weird and in everything. Although I guess being with Grace Jones the way that he was, uh, he, you can't help but is, but uh, fall into a certain gravity well of human ambiguity. Uh, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Hu- go ahead. Human ang- ambiguity and like high artistic seriousness as yes, well, yes, like yes. like very you know. Ho- uh, haute culture uh, kind of kind of artistic seriousness. Yeah, I mean, I think that your I think that your read of this as a, and and uh, you know it is the overthinking it thing to do to take it as a feature, not a bug. But I think it is kind of a bug that with, with all the credited writers on this thing, you can kind of see the geological layers of the the stories that they're trying to tell. I mean, one is a story about masculinity or maybe black masculinity in America and family. And and another is a story about legacy. I mean, maybe those are maybe those are the same. Maybe those are the most two related and sort of what you owe what you owe your parents, what what being a child, being a son means. Um, well, you know, one is a sports movie, right? That's about a sort of physical overcoming. I think it's a weakness that the physical overcoming is not partly because of this disjointedness is not linked to a to a kind of character overcoming and then the other the other is uh is the story of of rocky uh like or the the story of the father right or the or the surrogate father um Either uh, Ivan Drago or else Rocky Balboa, um, you know, realizing something through the lens of uh, kind of focalized through watching their son or surrogate son, um, you know, struggle with with uh, his own problems. And that's that's but I'd argue that Rocky is not changed by the events of this movie and that at the end uh, he's the same except he he calls his son. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That that's not a it's not super motivated. Um it's not super motivated by anything clear uh that that happens in this, right? And Right. He it's not like uh the Creed character arc where he has this like you know, visible character flaw that he needs to overcome. It's like no, Rocky's is like so lovable old Rocky. Yeah. Exactly right. And And also and also Creed doesn't need him to be his dad anymore because he's not Creed's dad. He's his own son's dad. Played by the actor who played him in Rocky Balboa, aka Rocky Six. So, although they, they could have dug up the actor who played him in Rocky Five. Although, is that the same guy? Uh, I wonder. Interesting. Well, while you go down that that uh, IMDb <laughs> rabbit hole, I think I interesting. Interestingly, I mean, you read that like um, Sylvester Stallone takes over the writing, and he has a kind of outdated view. He also, you know, there's all maybe uh, outdated, not geopolitical view because he he you know does sort of nail the the alienation between Ukraine and uh and Russia but he has a kind of an outmoded 
way of conceiving of conflicts geopolitically, right? Because the the story that Sylvester Stallone writes, at least we're we're assuming this, we're like the the uh, biblical scholars trying to trace the various levels of. Um, Various levels of biblical authorship by what they call uh, what they call the supreme being, right? And so, like the 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 S author, the Stallone author, of, <laughs> right of Creed two, uh, writes a story about a proxy war. Right yeah. about about sort of how the first and the second world wage war by means of a third world. Uh, third world kind of proxy war, and that's that's just a sort of different way of thinking. Um, it's not because there because there isn't like I think there are a number of things you could have done to make this a stronger movie. One is show the Ivan Drago um, story and arc uh, a little more, right, and and maybe even a little more a little more poignantly. Uh, another is to have kind of parallel arcs in Victor and Adonis's life, you know, um, and have that, have the conflict between them be a conflict more of, uh, be kind of mirrored in a character conflict, uh, a conflict of values as much as it is a, confl- a physical conflict or a conflict of sort of boxing styles or a kind of puzzle where the the shorter and less muscular creed needs to figure out how to deal with the, the raw power that Victor is capable of bringing to bear. Like, this is uh th- these are these are all ways to uh to uh slightly more tightly integrated film so to answer the question that you got called upon me to ask uh in rocky F- which I, I can't believe i forgot this in rocky 5 rocky's son rocky Balboa jr is played by sage stallone sylvester stallone's real life son who actually died six years ago uh, and I don't actually know the circumstances under which he died uh, off the top of my head, and they're not on his IMDb trivia page. Whereas when we get to uh, Rocky Balboa, then Rocky's son, Rocky Balboa Jr., is instead played by the guy from Heroes, <laughs> right, which is uh, Milo Ventimiglia. Uh, is He's from Heroes and... Uh, Gosh, looking at other stuff he's done. He's on This Is Us. Um, and he plays his son in Rocky Balboa, and he comes back to reprise his role in Rocky uh, in Ryan Creed 2, a.k.a. Rocky 8. Right. <laughs> um, man, I didn't realize that Sylvester Stallone had a son who died so long ago. Um, that is That really puts a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more pathos in these sort of father and son stories he's always telling. Do you think? Uh, do you think that J.J. Abrams is going to do a, a gritty reboot of the Rocky franchise where Philadelphia is nuked from orbit and Rocky has to train? You know, um, uh, Rocky has to train in a different timeline. Oh yeah. <laughs> That would be great if we got to have some. It, once we get to the point where all of the all, where they've dispensed with human actors and all of the actors are CGI recreations of famous people uh, that are sort of motion captured by using the cheapest available labor and reproduced, you know, on screen. I would like to see a kind of Rocky dystopian action movie where Rocky has to punch aliens. I feel like that would be a good use of that technology, at least as good as using Fred Astaire to sell vacuum cleaners, which I think. 
think is the sort of test case for that particular dystopia, right? Um, who is but, the person? Uh, yeah. I, there was someone recently, I think it was Jet Li, right, who was talking about how uh, he has refused Western uh, movie deals because they were going to mo- scan and motion capture uh, all of his stuff and own the rights to his moves and stuff like that. Yeah, he refused to do the Matrix, I think. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. He felt like, it, even though... It's the kind of thing that would have been necessary for them to make the Matrix, to be able to digitize his movements and store them so that they could use them in the kind of uh, effect shots. He did not feel like it was worth it to him to allow his mo- motion to be captured in that manner. I don't know whether he changed his mind later, uh, but uh, maybe there are various sorts of, of contracts at play. No, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're a brand name like that, like you, you increase your value by creating scarcity. You know, you That's can't, true. Right? That's true. You can't have... Uh, yeah. Um, can we use this as an opportunity to talk about the physicality of this movie? Yeah, um, sure. In, in, in a couple of different ways, right? The training montage, which is just like, you know, a must have table sticks for a Rocky movie, and then the actual fight itself. Um, one thing I wanted to comment on in, in, the, in the training montage um, uh, later on in the movie, uh, it's like really hitting the, the nail on the head, but like to contrast it with Rocky Four, right? Rocky trained in the snow, Creed trains in the desert. I mean, that's clearly what's going on there, right? Um, oh yeah, yeah. The, the other thing to point out is like the um, the movie was clearly trying to reach a moment of visual apotheosis um, that you get in the first Rocky with climbing the steps, and then in Creed where uh, he's running through the streets of Philadelphia with like the dirt bike kids uh, zipping around behind him, and they just don't quite nail it there. Um, but it's still like a pretty decent training montage. It's, you know, it brings in the music and like, you know, you see like the, the, the progression of physical ability over the course of like, I don't know, five minutes on screen. And like, you feel like you went from point A to point B. But there's, so there's, there's this, a connection in that montage made between, and, and this is actually mirrored in Victor's story as well, between masculinity and toughness and strength and, you know, the ability to, um, the ability to box and squalor or mm, you know yeah. kind of broke down right because like he goes to, he goes out to a broke down palace in the desert i i was thinking a lot about the desert and america and cowboys and family and like founding myths like the frontier you know um the the and there's just a lot. I mean, there's there's a lot there. Not all of it. Like like a lot of things about the movie, it's disjointed. But like hammering in the the sand, you know, like the railroad was a lot of it was built by slaves. Um, the the cow the kind of cowboy um, out outside of civilization doing the violence that can't be done inside of civilization but upon which civil civilization here um represented by tessa thompson and the baby uh the family depend on um there, there, there was just a lot i felt like there was a lot there but one one interesting thing to me was the kind of the squalor was the you know the broken down sheds and the fact that it's like it's rusty chains and and uh the the heavy bag is you know five tires swinging from three rusty chains uh off of a you know rusted iron pipe armature that it's uh you know that it was put up and and the same thing i mean right like was meant to it was meant to um 
show, I guess, the kind of the how far the Dragos had fallen. But it, it was the same thing of like uh, Ivan and Victor waking up, sleeping on the couch, you know, in the the dirty apartment, barely enough room to to sort of move. Nothing luxurious. Nothing like the uh, nothing like the the luxury um, that the Creed family lives in. Nothing like American opulence and and decadence. And there's something to this idea of beyond just the like the connections with the Western and to kind of American founding myths. There's something to this idea of like to be a man, you have to go out to where the sheds are falling apart, to where the iron, um, where the iron is rusting, to where the the guy with the face tattoos is going to punch you over and over at, in order in order to be a man. And that's you know, and that's yeah. And and by the way, the 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 reason that the hero shot at the end of that didn't work is that it just showed his face and not his body. Like because I was waiting, I was waiting for the same thing. And and it's the shot that came in the film when uh, sorry in the final fight when uh, they start playing when that start when that sorry I don't know that one what's that song okay Okay, okay, okay. I don't know the words, unfortunately. Yeah. But thanks for. <laughs> it's uh, it's gonna good. fly now. Oh, that's right. That's right. Gonna fly now. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know, but if you hum a few bars, maybe I can pick it up. <laughs> um, that w- that that was the shot, the low angle shot of him looking imposing and statuesque, uh, bloodied but unbowed. You know, um, looking dangerous but also like attractive. You know, gi- giving looking like an Adonis. You know, though I guess I guess uh, Adonis. I don't know. I'd have to go back to to some art history textbooks, but I think Adonis was a little more androgynous, right? In in the classical art historical tradition, um, that that like you know that that was the shot that that training montage wanted to lead up to, but they wanted to save it for the for the final um, for the final fight, and and so save it they did. So I, I like I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm totally following you with it. I think I got a little bit more out of the training montage. Um, and again, this also just might be me reading into it. And of course, the author is dead and whatnot. And, you know, they put images up there that mean to be powerful and maybe they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Maybe they do. But I would maybe describe part of the reason why Kugler's Creed is is more. OK, so Kugler doing Creed is attempting to recreate a sort of translation of the idea of Rocky into the black experience in America. And in order to do this, he is not just one for one changing over everything that happens to Rocky. He takes out the things that Rocky experienced as an Italian-American in Philadelphia and replaces them with things that an African-American would experience in Philadelphia, including the music, the scenery, the environment, the people, right? It's going to be different. And so in doing so, he creates kind of an analogous story, but that still feels grounded and doesn't feel like entirely based off of Rocky's story. And it's also trying to build a a masculinity, a a boxer hero uh, who is authentically American and black and East Coast. And I think that in much the same way 
that Rocky and Rocky four, I, I would say that maybe the difference here is kind of a difference between history and historiography. Like, like Rocky is a historical movie and Rocky four is a historiographical movie where like, uh, in Rocky one, they're showing you an idea of things that people experienced and, and they're trying to show you, this is kind of how Rocky lived and this is how Adrian lived. And this is the way that they were together. And, and yes, he goes on and he fights to be heavyweight champion, but this is sort of what his life was like to get to that point. And then in Rocky four, it's like all symbolic. And it's like, like the scene where Rocky holds up the giant cart full of rocks or like the, when he's carrying uh, all of the other people like Adrian and and Polly and everybody is like sitting on something and he's lifting them all up. That's not an authentic experience that a human being has. It's like a symbol, right? That's trying to tell a story about how uh, Rocky, came, Rocky and America came to be not portraying a person that lived in America. And, and I think that in that sense, I really connect with what you were saying, Matt, about the desert and cowboys and particularly slavery because and also and I just want to sort of um, provide a propose uh, a particular sort of uh, narrative that I think at one point was pretty mainstream conventional wisdom. But I would imagine now is extremely unpopular, which is that um, at least among uh, you know sets that we talk to, which is that the opportunity that men in America now have to live lives that are by and large free of violence is only afforded to them because of the commitment and sacrifice of men of previous generations who are willing to endure suffering and violence. And as such, the men today don't really recognize that if they lapse too long, if they enjoy themselves too much off the fruits of the work of the men that came before them, this privilege that has been earned in blood will be lost to them and to future generations. And as such, men owe it to their society to go back to that suffering, right? To go back to that asceticism and that kind of, it's the whole, the more you sweat in peace, the less you bleed in war kind of thing, to really suffer and dedicate themselves in this sort of self-destructive way in order that society can be built up on the back of that kind of work. And I think the way that this movie engages with it is it puts him in the desert, right, with like sort of which is both sort of a cowboy space, but in this case also uh, a Mexican space, right, because you're looking at because I think it's like uh, there's a bunch of Spanish speaking people there. And so you're in this sort of idea, you're in the sort of like underpinning of America, which is also involves a lot of Spanish speaking immigration and working class people who aren't really part of the mainstream, but are necessary because of the way that they suffer and, and struggle for everyone else to enjoy their wonderful privileged life. Right. You all have to have it on the backs of these men. And and uh, and and Adonis has to go out into this Mexican American desert among all these people. And for me, the money shot does happen. Money shot's the wrong word, but the payoff shot does happen. But it's also I'm also looking for it. So you you can be the judge, which is that when Adonis is is on the road and there's a car, right? And he's like he's like chasing the car, right? Rock is he behind the car or in front of the car? I think he's behind the car. He starts behind. out behind the car, but he winds up at the end in front of the car. Yeah, right. Because because in the beginning, Victor Drago is in front of the car, and then he ends up uh, out of the car. But um, but but there's the moment where he looks up and you see his face. But what you also see is his clothes. You see like the tops of his clothes, and he's wearing this very dun linen, this sort of tan, shapeless linen sack shirt. And for me, that garment is associated with slavery, 
Uh, I mean, I've been looking. I mean, if you look up 12 Years a Slave, uh, I mean, I, I was looking up old stuff from Roots. You know, Kunta Kinte's pants are the same color. Like, I associate that fabric and that style of clothing with televised depictions of slavery. <laughs> and as such, what what uh, what Creed is doing in this moment is he is experiencing a historiography of how he got to the point that he could live in a fancy house, which is that his ancestors endured all of this suffering. And and this is the same thing that Rocky does when he goes out into Siberia, except it's this fantasy version of it. It's not realistic. It's not like it's not like Adonis Creed running with the dirt bike kids in Philadelphia, where this is what really happened. It's this sort of like symbolic, broad, you know, national and international narrative stuff where, you know, Creed even to the degree that he rises to become an American hero is always the descendant of slaves and always needs to battle that and needs to build whatever sort of pride he has off of in, in the contrast to this legacy of pain and, and suffering and erasure and all this other stuff that, that his people had to deal with. And, and so it's much more on the nose. Whereas like when Kugler is doing stuff like this, you know, Kugler, uh, he does a lot of stuff with Afrofuturism, which is also built around this idea of like, how do we frame alternative narratives of the black experience in America that don't focus on how bad things were and how humiliated we were and how powerless we were? How do we make ourselves powerful? Because we are powerful. And But if we believe that we have only a legacy of powerlessness, and of course, the last thing you want to hear is some random Yale-educated white guy saying all these things. But I feel it's important to talk about the movie. Um, but if, if all we've experienced in our past is powerlessness, then how can we look each other in the eye now and say that we're powerful? So there's a couple different angles that people use to do this through history. A big one is Afrofuturism and this, this sort of idea that like – Black people come from Africa, and Africa could be this visionary utopian place that's like Sun Ra and the G Funk mother, the P Funk mothership, and all those sorts of stuff. You know, it's like this idea of, of an awesome cosmic Africa which empowers Black America with this sort of spirit of progress that it can be part of, and the vanguard of the future, and the sort of soul that accompanies all these things. But then also, there's this story, which is the sort of we were so tough. This is the Denzel Washington in Roots story that he wins the Academy Award for, right? Which is like the slave who is never really broken and, and who is always, always maintains his strength and who uh, even through his suffering is recognizable as calling to the world to acknowledge his humanity through his sort of personal power. And so I feel like when Adonis is on the road with the car, dressed in the the bare linen, you know, sweating and bleeding in the desert, he is kind of going back through the past uh, and, and also the sort of underpinning of America in a similar sort of way as Rocky in the in, with the with the stones and the mountains is sort of past the frontier. Right. And he's also doing this deal like, OK, you don't get to the America with the mansions and the sex robots unless you go through the America where we chop down a lot of trees and have to eat our shoes in the woods. Right. Like that's like the kind of uh, that's, you know, don't put that on your graduate history paper. But that's how I read these movies. Um, and uh so maybe maybe you guys read them the same way. Maybe you don't. Uh, that's at least how I how I sort of feel the intent uh, of this movie, which is weird because like Adonis has this weird relationship with luxury in this movie where he has luxury and he likes luxury, but he's kind of confronted by his luxury and his luxury isn't entirely comfortable to him. But he also isn't entirely comfortable being like totally bare bones and run down like he wants to be fancy. Uh, you know, he wants to have uh, the the him. I mean, his wife and her sort of fancy the fancy entrances that he does with all the DJ music, right? And this fancy light shows. He doesn't like strip all the way down like Mike Tyson did, you know, and enter in like you know plain shorts back before he Don King got to him and ruined his life. Um, 
anyway, sorry, I've been going off for a little while, so I will I will cede the floor if anybody else wants to talk about any of these various topics that I've been touching on. Well, let's get to the let's get to the final fight because the training montage absolutely is you know there to to train him for something. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure it's, it's not just it's, fitness for the sake of fitness? Look, I'm I want a body for life. That's that's you know it's not a diet; it's a lifestyle choice. I don't go into the desert in order to get in shape for a particular reason. I do it for me, so I just because I because I deserve it. Mm. Right? Like, is, is there the next one where he goes to the Planet Fitness and he has to figure out how to train? You know, he's still like you have to go to the Judgment Free Zone. You know, judgment is the problem. Anyway, sorry. What he is does, he training? Well, he does. Yeah. What I mean, what what is he training for? I mean, it's. I've, I feel like someone who is who is comfortable with a rusted iron pipe and a and a sledgehammer and a, a giant tractor tire to flip over actually might be kind of flummoxed by a Planet Fitness because uh, <laughs> you know it's a, it, it aims to be a lot more user friendly than the. Um, than the the you know broke down palace out out in the in the desert. I mean, I don't know. I I guess Mark, do you feel like do you feel like there is an important moment of character overcoming that happens for Adonis in the final fight, or do you feel like it's it's just that he sticks with the strategy, toughs it out, and the strategy works? I think it's more that. I think the the final fight in this movie, at least, and at least to and to a certain extent for every boxing movie and certainly every Rocky movie, is like it just gives you like this inc- these incredible moments of physical catharsis, right? Um, I don't know what the uh, what your audience was like, but uh, my theater was reasonably full even on a Sunday afternoon a couple of weeks after the movie came out, um, and everyone in the theater was wincing with the punches. Um, oh, and, yeah. and the movie, you know, I think I, I don't want to take for granted that a boxing movie will make you do that. Um, I mean, there's some obvious filmmaking techniques in terms of, you know, sound and, and video to telegraph a particularly, uh, a painful punch, but, uh, uh, the movie succeeded in spades in that regard. Um, and the other really telling thing about how this movie was succeeding in, in delivering that emotional catharsis, which, um, again, it's not just all about the physicality, you know, the character moments before led up to it as well is the first time that, Creed finally turns the fight around and knocks Drago down to the to the, to the mat. Um, multiple people like started to applaud spontaneously. I pumped my fists in the air <laughs> as if Rocky <laughs> was standing on the on the, on the steps of the art museum. Um, I, I couldn't help it, and uh, that to me was like uh, like that's why I came to that movie, right? For that for that sort of moment. So I was really satisfied by that. Pete, oh, yeah. final final fight thoughts. Final thoughts oh, on the final fight. Well, <laughs> I mean, the more Rocky, the more. I learn here and there about boxing and the more boxing I watch over the years, the more apparent it is that being in any fight in Rocky uh, would kill you. (laughs) (laughs) The Rocky fights are so brutal. They are so much more brutal than real life fights are. You would not be able to take three or four of those punches to the face from a heavyweight champion without going down. I don't care who you are, right? I don't care if you yourself are a heavyweight champion. There is a limit to the amount of punishment that the human body can take. And every single Rocky movie surpasses it. And, and that is part of, I guess, the fantasy of the Rocky movie, but also the sort of uh, 
the sort of carnal pleasure of the Rocky movie is very invested in the destruction of the body. I mean, yeah, and and that's and that maybe is also linked to that sort of fantasy '80s historiography about rugged individualism that I've been talking about too. But it just those they figured it out in Creed. They figured out if you watch the um, if you watch the fight with Mason Dixon, Mason the Line Dixon in Rocky Balboa, and then you watch the fight in the first Creed movie, they just you know they Kugler just totally transformed boxing on on film. Right? It's just amazing. Uh, maybe it's the second unit director. Maybe it's him. I don't know. But whoever figured out how to shoot these bo- these fights and make them look make a inordinately brutal Rocky fight uh, look even more brutal. I mean, my hat's off to them. Definitely. It's well, you it's can get in. I mean, well, sorry, a couple things about that. You can get in closer. You have digital cameras that are lighter in general now. You can. I mean, you have more technological options that make uh, that make things possible. And then the the advent of CGI makes you know a lot of stuff. If you get it eighty eighty percent of the way there in camera, the the visual effects team will take care of the rest. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you're saying that like that if if Creed if Creed's boxing sequences had not been invented, they would have sprung from circumstance. Yeah. Just would, because as the technology enables it. Okay. It would have been necessary to invent them. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I hope that they. Uh, do you think they ever, have ever won anything at any of the technical Oscars? Probably not. Right. Yeah, just, There's no award for like punching. <laughs> like you really you really innovated the technical side of punching. Uh, with lighting and and rotoscoping, or, it is beautiful though, right? The violence and the power, the physicality, the power of it. There's there's be- beautiful is a appropriate and accurate word to describe that. Oh, I will leave oh, yeah. my comments at that. Sublime, I think. Yeah, right, because beautiful and terrible and painful. Mm, also, yeah. also that time that they fight in Brooklyn, I think that uh, people were testing positive for steroids in the Bronx and Staten Island. There's, there's, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, there's more, there's more beef in that ring than at an Arby's. And it is, uh, it is just, that's probably not the right metaphor. I can't think of something that has enough beef to make that joke funny. But, uh, but the point being that like, these guys are huge. <laughs> and they're, they're huge. Like they're huger. A regular boxer would want to maybe be a little bit less heavy. I know that the guy playing Victor Drago is actually a fighter, but he also apparently does a ton of steroids just because of what he looks like. <laughs> but, uh, um, but just the fantasy of it, I guess, right? That this is like this is like almost like super deformed anime at this point in terms of like the muscles and the punching, like. We're we're like almost we're like we're like like fist of the north star wish it could depict the like, human body in this manner, right? Like, like like Goku is up to like power level, you know, I don't know, six thousand eight hundred twenty-three. Exactly. Although on his way to nine thousand, yeah, it's it's good stuff. Except instead of exuding chi, he's like sweating cod and hot sauce and testosterone something. Like <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I think we might need to leave our uh creed to there. We might need to throw in the towel on uh on this bout. But let's go uh back to some um, listener feedback. I've been promising it for for about a month, and we haven't done it. I'm I'm uh, sorry for that. But here are some comments that were left by uh, listeners. Uh, let's go back all the way to episode 540. You're a wizard, Freddie Mercury. Our uh, our. On, on the movie that should have been called We Will Rock You, but it's called Bohemian Rhapsody. No, I guess it could be called Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, Chad writes, So I saw this movie knowing next to nothing about the actual history of Queen and only slightly cognizant of Freddie Mercury, aside from the fact he was an incredibly gifted vocalist and he died of AIDS. I enjoyed this movie, though I am the guy who thought that Russell Crowe was fine in Les Miserables. 
he he wasn't fine. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, you, you sorry. Can, you chat. can have that. You can have that opinion, Chad. But it's wrong. <laughs> sure. sure, everyone's entitled to their to their wrong opinion, right? Like, yes, the uh, uh, I don't know. Can can we go out there and say that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was better than Les Miserables? In addition to Rami Malek being better than uh, Russell Crowe, both as a both as a singer, he did some of the singing in that movie. And and uh, are we are we ready to make that to, to make that leap though and call this film? Better. better well, I'm on. Than- I'm on record as thinking the Lay Miz movie is a travesty. So yeah, sure. <laughs> I love Lay Miz movie. I wept, but I also wept when Stephen Drago threw in the towel in Creed too. So I cry at everything. <laughs> so whether I cry at Fontaine having her head shaved and her teeth taken out is uh, maybe not a good metric on whether the movie is good. So Chad, you ever want to come and and appreciate? Uh, you you want to appreciate Russell Crowe's Javerian performance? Uh, you know, come watch Lay Miz with me and ignore the other guys because. I dreamed a dream in days gone by when hope was high and I had molar. Look, Hugh Jackman is great in everything he does in which he suffers physically. All right, so there you go. And that's that's our link to Creed 2. John C. writes, I haven't seen the movie, so I think what I've really learned here is that Highlander is the axis mundi around which everything is a mere carousel horse. And in the time of the gathering, all will fight to try to reach the axis, and there can be only one. And that one will be, I'm calling it now, the Brady Brides. The Brady Brides? Yeah, I, John C., I don't get it. Is that a show? Are they making a show about the brides of the Brady Bunch? What is the, like uh, the Brady Brides is a TV series from 1981, uh, which appears to. Yes, it's the oldest Brady girls, Marsha and Jan, have grown up and met the men they have been looking for. The girls find a house that they have always wanted to have. Uh, but but have to convince the guys that it's a good time to move in together. So this is apparently a uh, wow. This is a real thing that existed. That's it amazing, a- and it's it's part of the Highlander cinematic universe. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, when you think when you think that Marsha and Jan are the Brady's that are left when they make the Brady Bride spinoff in 1981 or wherever it is, I guess it does make a lot of sense. I wonder if Marsha is tortured by Bobby's memories because she chopped his head off and stole his powers. (laughs) (laughs) Pork chops and applesauce. Pork chops and applesauce. Um, all right. That's Peter Brady. Never mind. <laughs> Episode 541, you left with the pictures where, where Pete and I talked about disasters. It's, it's a little tough. And, uh, and, and I think we need to listen. I think we need to listen to the comments with, with generosity as well, because it's difficult to talk about events where people have had great suffering, uh, without seeming insensitive. And you don't want to be insensitive. Uh, the only thing worse than seeming insensitive is actually being insensitive. I mean, I'm the one who just tried to talk about slavery. So I hope I'm doing okay <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying my best over here so anyway uh, so margo margo writes in to say so is it exploitative to mention climate change when discussing fires hurricanes and other natural disasters these are events that are not uh, directly caused yet still exacerbated by climate change um according to scientific consensus in considering climate change we're all both victims and perpetrators both to varying uh, to varying degrees it would be easier if we could uh, it would be easier she writes if we could attribute these events solely as acts of the deity. 
And Mike O writes in to say California is prone to fires, just as just as certain parts of the country says the South, also the East Coast, prone to hurricanes, uh, and Mid America in Tornado Alley is prone to uh, prone to tornadoes. Um, so that you know, one one reaction writes Mike O is, "What did you expect?" And I mean, there is a certain amount of of kind of fair play in that question where we are um we, i think california in particular is uh grappling with this now and it's you, you know you sort of don't want to blame the people who have lost their homes that would be very very insensitive um but it is a fact that we do build into these vulnerable landscapes uh, in California into kind of wilderness areas or into the kind of the, the interface between the suburbs and the wilderness um, that that even without the exacerbating effects of global warming would be would be prone to wildfires. Um, we do that because it's desirable real estate. You know, the, a lot of, a lot of beach real estate that's prone to hurricanes is desirable real estate. And we, uh, we seem to, to sort of go, go back to these things. Um, I, I think that, and I, I think that that just focusing on the, on the, the climate change aspect of that might serve to elide, uh, the fact that, that we do seem to be engaging in, in high risk behavior. Um, a lot, and uh, in the case of the the campfire that destroyed the the town of Paradise in in Northern California, um, that was a, a city with a median home price of something like two hundred thousand dollars, which is as as reasonable as it gets in California. Um, that was that was a not a rich community. Uh, it was a very elderly community. And so you have a, a sort of vulnerable population living in a vulnerable place. And in terms of, in terms of urban planning or just kind of um, planning for the future of, of people uh, in this country and in the world, like de- addressing these questions um, w- without, you know, blaming people who are following the, the the what they think is best in the in the moment but like asking these questions at the level of leadership is something that that we have to do i don't know did i pete did i uh bunkle that did no I, I think i think i think there's a lot of important issues definitely i mean i guess the only thing i would add is that there is an irony there's a cruel irony to this right which is that the arguments around climate change are often arguments about empiricism and the value of empiricism in the sense that we have data because we've measured it. And because we've measured it, you know, this creates the uh, the sort of the measurement itself creates the obligation to deal with the data that we've seen is kind of a is sort of an interesting and I don't necessarily want to get into the inner workings of that particular argument. But uh, that is sort of when people are saying, like, science says that we need to do this. Uh, And, um, you know, probably a good idea to do something. But the the, the irony is that for a person on the ground who's experiencing a catastrophic event, they're – if you if they believe in empiricism, like if you if you privilege observation and evidence, the experience that they have based on their observation and their evidence when they don't have access to or at least familiarity with or sort of professional skill or comfort with working with the sort of larger data sets, uh, their observations 
create a pretty clear boundary between, you know, what is comprehensible and what can be observed and what can be observed but is like incomprehensible. And what is my experience of having to go through this uh, that is concrete to me as opposed to what is my sort of general vaguer sense about what might be causing the weather uh, or might be causing the fires. Um, yeah, what I'm basically saying is that both groups are have a shared belief in the importance of prioritizing what you can actually see with your eyes, and that it's a matter of people who are in different situations in which different sorts of data is front and center for them, and also people who are engaging in different sorts of heuristics and problem solving. Because if you're on the ground, or even if you're looking at it from a satellite, and you're trying to deal with people who are dealing with fires and hurricanes and trying to get them to safety and trying to rebuild places and all this other stuff, you know, what you see, you know, is not going to be the 100 years of climate change 50 years of climate change, 40 years of climate change, 20 years of climate change, uh, it's going to be like the ruined places and the fires and the floods and the wind, right? Uh, and so, but at the same time, if you're the climate change uh, scientist or somebody who follows climate change science, what you see isn't necessarily going to be the one person who has their house destroyed. It's going to be the data, right? And so it's, it's, it's just, it's interesting to see how a similar sort of pragmatic way of approaching experience can lead to very, very different sorts of perspectives that are different also based on the situation. Um, so I guess that's that's how I'm not solving any problems by suggesting that, but it just sort of, uh, I don't think it's wrong to bring up climate change, but I think it might be, uh, it might be impolite to prioritize if you're dealing with somebody who is personally evacuating, right? Like if you're like, my house is on fire, right? And you're like, well, have you thought about whether you're a vegetarian or not? That might warrant a punch in the face, right? Like as, as we might now tie it back to Creed too, perhaps violence isn't really a solution to people's problems, uh, but perhaps in some kind of situations, it's awfully tempting, uh, right? Like uh, you don't necessarily say that the person who is evacuating from their home, but I'm not saying anybody is actually doing that. Where a lot of us are sort of imagining what people feel like. The exception, of course, being you, Matt, and the people close to you and the people in California who are dealing with the situation now. Um, so that's a lot of ranting to basically say, uh, yes, I understand. And uh, there's no easy way to reconcile these multiple different perspectives other than to recognize that they coexist in a world in which people aren't always experiencing the same thing at the same time. Well, multi multiple different perspectives and also multiple different problems that need to be solved on different levels. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, in different in different times. But yes, don't don't uh, don't bug uh, don't bunk someone who is, you know, standing amid the wreckage of their home and all of their belongings and, and tell them that that, uh, you know, meat production is that the, the uh, meat production is responsible for more greenhouse ga gases than all the transportation in the world. That is, I, I, of I often say that that these things are are rather than matters of hard and fast rules in terms of what you can and can't say as a person yeah. in this world. It's often a matter of uh, tone sensitivity, emphasis, and scale, and that fails on all four. Yeah, I mean the people the people who are prepping for these disasters and do this professionally, I can assure you, are very aware of climate change. It is it is on the docket. It is something that is very much all of the different sort of harbor shoring ups that need to happen, all that stuff. Uh, and now we're getting a little bit too close to what I do for my job, so I'm going to have to bow out. All right. Uh, let's uh, yeah. let's just uh, wrap up here with a couple of observations. Good, good observations from uh, episode 542, Old Country for No Men, our podcast on widows. Clay Schultz writes, uh, I just saw this film. Going into it, I knew it was a heist film, and several critics have 
said that heist films are metaphors for the process of making films. For both, you need to get a crew together to plan and execute. Each crew person might have a different specialty. Everyone needs to play their part correctly. Things can go wrong to make the production or heist a failure. And after it is done, countless people comb through the production or heist, uh, comb through the, the aftermath to see what happened. This film also made me realize how much an election campaign is like a heist. That subtext was a little more obvious in this film. He means then the metatextual one about uh, uh, about filmmaking. And John C. writes in, all this time I have been wondering why people talk about Steve McQueen like he's some up-and-comer rather than a famous actor. Turns out this is something I should have looked up sooner because not the same guy. Oops. <laughs> yep. Uh, Steve McQueen, the uh, English director, is different from Steve McQueen, the American movie star. Uh, Neither thanks. are Irish. <laughs> Maybe Steve McQueen is Irish by extraction. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and then finally, let's uh, let's end with a comment from last week's episode. John C. writes, I hope this new membership plan works for you. It convinced me, at least, and it's probably worth it uh, for an account, just to have an account that pre-populates my name. Let me add <laughs> that you uh, let me add that you also get a little badge next to your name so that when you leave your comments on the show notes in these episodes, everyone knows that you are a member who has supported us. If you'd like to leave comments, head to the homepage of Overthinking and click through the show notes uh, for this episode. You'll find a little place where you can leave comments there. We would love to uh, hear from you and we will read uh, all or some or part of some on a future episode of this podcast. Well, we want a little long guys but thank you very much for podcasting with me and thank you for listening uh check out the overthinking it gift guide for 2018 and please consider supporting us by becoming a member for five bucks a month less than five bucks a month if you uh pay for the whole year in advance then it's 50 bucks a year less than a dollar a podcast uh hope you're getting at least a dollar out of uh a dollar's worth of entertainment out of what we do if you are we'll be back next week till then visit us on the web at overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve